Today's sermon text is Luke 5, 1 through 32. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 860. Hear the word of the Lord. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, He fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? or to say, Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. 
And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That was easier than last time. Good morning. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. You are our, our Lord, and our rock, and our Redeemer. And so we pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went to my regularly scheduled dental cleaning appointment. And for those of you in this church, you know that that looks maybe a little different for me. My wife is a dentist. So I go and visit Laura, and she's at a pediatric clinic, so the questions that she asks me when I go get my teeth cleaned are, do you want to watch Bluey or the Super Mario Brothers movie? It's a little different than your normal dental checkup. But it got me thinking about a question that I heard her and another friend talking about earlier, uh, like last month, about how this friend hated going to the dentist, not because they didn't like dental cleaning, but because they hated getting their blood pressure taken. They really hated that they went to the dentist and that the dentist would check their blood pressure. Now, I go to Laura. She knows me. She doesn't have to do some of that stuff. But Laura explained to me and to this friend that it's, you know, your your teeth being clean is, uh, I, I can't say unimportant because I'm, again, it's it's important. But but there is there's a hierarchy of needs. Like there's a hierarchy of what's more important. And so Laura has at some points had to have people come and get their teeth cleaned. She sits them down in a chair and takes their blood pressure and takes a cuff off and says, "Nope, there's a, you're not getting that crown done today. You're gonna get to go to the hospital because of how high your blood pressure is." Right? What they thought was their greatest need all of a sudden was just shown to be not the case. They, they thought they needed clean teeth. They needed some heart work to be done. And I, I wonder if you've ever had something like that happen. I hope that's not been your experience at the dental office or you've gone to, I know some people who, who do, go to see a doctor for what is a routine checkup. Something that you just think is ticking off the box and you get there and you're told that there is something actually pretty serious going on with your health. 
Or, or you have a, a contractor come to the house and you think about, you're, you're thinking about remodeling a bathroom and they're looking and they go underneath your house, which you really don't want them to do. And they say, instead of that really nice looking bathroom, you're going to need a water heater or a new foundation. Uh, you go to a counselor because you think there's like just a little relational tension between you and a friend and they say, you, you seem to have like some deep seated anxiety. That we really need to think through and deal with. It's not just this friend, but all of your relationships. Right? Sometimes we need help seeing what we think is our greatest need. is actually not our greatest need. But there's, there's something more important there. And as we come to this portion of Luke's gospel, my prayer this week is that the Lord would use this text to do that kind of diagnosing in our own lives. To say, like, what you come to Jesus with and think, here's, here's my greatest need that I need to be met. What if, what if he says, there's a different need that you have? There's something greater that you need to think through. And I've been praying that the Lord would use his word to show us that need, that we would see the answer in Christ, and that we would want to follow him and then just call others to find that same answer. That's what I've been praying for this week as we approach this text. Now remember, last week was like the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he, he preached this short, powerful sermon in his hometown of Nazareth. And at first, the people loved it. They said they were amazed by his words. But then, then they say, but we know this guy. And all this stuff he is saying can't really be true of him. And so ultimately they reject him and Jesus goes outside of the synagogue where you think like his ministry is going to be taking place and he starts traveling to other places. He's still teaching in synagogues, but he's also going out to those on the outside, doing ministry among those whom you may not expect to be his anticipated audience. And in many ways, the four stories that we find in our passage this morning is doing that similar kind of work. He's going outside to places where we probably don't expect but I think he's also kind of ratcheting up what we saw last week. It's not just the same thing. It's that he's making some claims about himself. Uh, we saw him last week make some pretty remarkable claims. This week the claims maybe get more intense. And the reactions to Jesus, they get more intense as well. We see people following him well. Well, these, these four passages carry on that idea and we want to see that here and you can think about these as like a sandwich okay so we've got four stories we're looking at on the outside you see some similarities right two stories of disciples following jesus and on the inside we have these two stories of jesus miraculously healing two people and normally if you've been here for the past year you know i, I generally walk through start to finish but today i want to I want to look at those two inside stories because I want us to see there something about the identity of Jesus and who he is. And then I want to work out and see what does that mean for us who want to follow him, who want to be his disciples. And I think by walking through it that way, it will kind of bring out this main point that I think these four stories are telling. Because Jesus can forgive our sins, we should follow him. Because Jesus can forgive our sins, we can, we should follow him. And if you want to add something to that, we should call others to do the same. Okay, so that's, that's the main point of these four passages taken together. And we're just going to walk through it, outline our, uh, the, our time together in the word this morning through those two sentences. 
So turn to Luke chapter 5, and we're going to start, like I said, at that second story. Luke 5, verse 12. And begin with this healing of a man who is said to be full of leprosy. Now, leprosy can, uh, if you're looking at the Pew Bible or an ESV, there's a footnote that tells you that leprosy could be a whole host of skin diseases. We don't exactly know what this guy has, but but you never want to be described as full of a disease. Like, that's a bad way to be, okay? So whatever he has, it is severe enough that everybody can tell this man has leprosy. And his leprosy is a problem, not just because of physical implications, like having an itchy rash or just like bad skin. Much, much more problematic than that is the social and religious ramifications that come with this. So if you want to go back, you can go read Leviticus 13 and 14 this afternoon. You can see all the things where they can come to this. I went back and read it this week. It made me very happy to be a pastor and not a priest. There are like a whole chapter where like the people go to the priest and is telling a priest how you determine if it's leprosy or if it's just a rash. And I'm so glad that I love you very much that none of you have ever come and asked me if your rash is leprosy. But that's the job of the priest. And it's his job because leprosy is contagious. Right, so the, the point of that is kind of here. It's on your notes. Leviticus 13, 45 and 46. Here's the crux of the problem. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So beyond just like the physical discomfort, the biggest problem is social isolation and religious uncleanness. We we talked about this briefly in core training this morning. This uncleanness is contagious. So if you want to go to the temple, to the sanctuary and worship the Lord, and you just happen to come in contact with this man with leprosy, you can't go. And so this, this man, anyone with leprosy, they are meant to distance themselves from the community. But this man had heard of a man named Jesus, who has power, who's been doing miraculous works. And so he comes to him and falls on his face and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And that little request is like a beautiful prayer of faith. Uh, remember, we've already seen some people try to put Jesus to the test. So demons who are like, hey, if you're the son of God, do this thing. Uh, or in, in Nazareth, they're like, just do some miraculous works. If you want us to believe what you say, then do some of those miracles. That's not what this man is doing. This man is coming to Jesus and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth are yours, essentially. If you want to, you can. You can make me clean. He just doesn't know if that's... God's will for his life there. But Jesus does something surprising next. And this is really the climax of this story. Look down at verse 13. <clears throat> Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. The, the law had commanded that lepers were to live outside the camp, right? So that their uncleanness would not spread to others. This leper, this man with leprosy, we, we don't know much about him, but 
however long he has had this leprosy, this could be the first physical contact with a human being in years. And Jesus, who has the power simply to speak, touches this man. And instead of leprosy contaminating Jesus, healing power goes out from him into this man. And he is made clean. He is healed. This this story, I love this story because this is such a display of not just the power of Jesus, but the tenderness, the compassion of a great physician. It's really good to have a doctor who is capable. It's something different to have one who is loving, who does the thing that you do not expect. This is where we see this in Jesus. This man who has been shunned, who may for himself feel like he is filled with shame, finds in Jesus one who does the unthinkable and who actually reaches out and touches him. Jesus is telling him and us, you are not too dirty. You are not too dirty that I would tell you to go away. And that kind of desire to cleanse and to show compassion and mercy is something that we need to hear as well. You may well need to hear, I am not too dirty that Jesus would not cleanse me. And you also may need to hear, that person over there is not so dirty that if he would come to Jesus or she would come to Jesus, Jesus would cleanse them too. This is how commentator Tom Schreiner puts it. If the Lord receives us, us, those who are dirty and defiled in our sin, then we should extend the same mercy and love to all people everywhere. Those whom society, or listen to this, those whom our own religious communities view as especially disgusting, should be warmly invited to the Savior for cleansing and acceptance. Jesus looks at this man and says, I will be clean. Now, the the story ends with Jesus telling the man to tell no one but to go and make an offering that Moses had commanded. And if that that little command, tell no one, is troubling, if that feels weird, it's not not what he tells you. Okay, It's not the end of the story. This is the beginning of the gospel. He's saying that he's doing all these miraculous works. And I think what's happening is he's saying, I don't want my reputation just to be the magician, the one who heals people. Uh, remember at the very end of chapter 4, he says, my purpose has come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That's his purpose for which he's come. But like uh, like a lot of these stories, you tell someone, hey, don't tell anybody this. And it spreads like wildfire so that great crowds gathered to hear him to be healed of our infirmities. Uh, there was a, a family in our church who told their young daughter that they were expecting a baby. And that was at six weeks. They're like, we don't need to tell anyone. And I was told by this this man, it was like at six weeks and one day, I think everybody in the world knew that we were expecting. Right? You tell the daughter, don't tell anyone, and it's just, bah, got to tell you. And that whatever is happening, whether it's just this man or there's other people who, this spreads like wildfire. But before moving to the next story, I, I say all that, that here come the crowds, here come the responsibilities of the people, but but look Briefly, just look at what Luke puts in at verse 16. He would, Jesus would, withdraw to desolate places and pray. 
Now, this is not a sermon on prayer. There will be sermons like on prayer, the whole thing that comes in the book of Luke. We're going to see prayer come up over and over. But I don't want to pass over what kind of role prayer plays in the ministry of Jesus, what it should be playing in the ministry of our lives, of where we see what happens with prayer and its importance even. I, I, I know many of you, I know that trying sometimes to schedule even like a lunch or a dinner with some of you feels impossible. Not, not because of you, but maybe even because of my schedule. We can do it next week. Maybe, maybe in th- three weeks, four weeks. I've got an opening at two o'clock. And you, you have that kind of expectation and you start to say, what am I going to trim? And I, I have probably at some point in my own life said something like, I'm just too busy to pray. I'm just too busy to do this. Or if even if I don't consciously think that because I'm a pastor and I would never say that, I at least act that way, right? These little things, spending time with God's people, in God's word, in prayer with the Lord, those things go to make time for other things. And here is Jesus at the height of his popularity. Like He's going to say some tough things in the weeks to come. Even here he says some tough things. But right now he's got everybody coming to him. And at the very height of his popularity, he shows us that he is so busy that he must pray. He feels it is necessary with everything going on to go away and to spend time with his father. Martin Luther, the the reformer who had so many responsibilities kind of at the height of reformation, he supposedly said this thing. I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. That's countercultural. Like, that doesn't make sense to us. And I'm not encouraging you in saying that you must, if you want to be a good Christian, go spend three hours in prayer if you're very busy. What I am saying is that we need to have that kind of view of prayer. Like, there are so many other things that I could get rid of instead of prayer, instead of spending time with the Lord. So instead of, I know, I know we are a people with full schedules and with minds that are occupied by a thousand different things and with low energy sometimes, don't trim, don't, don't put to the side what Jesus continues to do. We should be, we pray even that we would be a people of prayer, that we would run to the Lord in that instead of cutting that out. Now, this, this uh, story, like I said, spreads like wildfire. In verse 17, taking us to this next story that we see of Jesus, gathers a crowd of people around Jesus, and there's a new crowd, a new group here. It's the Pharisees. And the scribes, this is the first time we've heard about them. And it says it's not just like a Pharisee from the town that he's in, but Pharisees from all throughout Galilee and Judea, even all the way from Jerusalem, they've come to sit here. And we'll talk more about the Pharisees as we go, but what you need to know, at least today, is that these guys were the biblical scholars of the day. Okay, They knew their Old Testaments really well. And so they're, they're, they're like the seminary professors. But we have that kind of introduction. But then Luke focuses our attention on somebody else who comes walking up to the crowd, a group of men carrying another man on a stretcher, on a a bed, carrying between these friends. This is a man who's paralyzed. He can't come to Jesus himself, but they have brought him to Jesus. And the crowd is so thick that they can't get in the house. They can't get an audience before Jesus, but they are persistent, and so they go up on the roof. They take stairs or whatever it is to the roof. They remove tiles, and they lower their friend right into the lap 
essentially, of Jesus. And this man who has been desperate to walk for who knows how long is finally there. Finally in the presence of the great physician. What do you think he wants to hear? I think he wants to hear, get up. Get up and go walk. That's the reason that you carry your paralyzed friend to go see the guy who you heard could heal people. But what does Jesus say to him? Man, your sins are forgiven you. That's the, that's the dentist taking your blood pressure and saying, you've got a bigger problem. You, you may have come to hear this. You may have been brought here with legs that don't work, but you have a heart of stone. And you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And Jesus, the great physician, he diagnoses the greater need. He says, this is the need. And forgives this man's sin. And that is what sets off the real conflict of the story. The problem for Jesus, we've already seen him healing. But the problem here comes in verse 21. The scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And remember, these guys are the biblical scholars. They know their Bible well, and they're right. This is the reason why we read an assurance of pardon from the Old Testament. From Isaiah 43, 25, that you heard earlier. I, God speaking, I am he who blots out your transgressions. For my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. They know only God has the authority, the prerogative to forgive sins. And here is this guy, Jesus, speaking with that same kind of authority, saying, your sins are forgiven. And they know, he's saying not just that it's like God is doing it, they're speaking in a way that is coming from him. That's blasphemy. He's equating himself with God. And these Pharisees are horrified. And so Jesus asks them a question. Which is easier, friend, which is easier, Pharisee, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Now what's the answer to that question? The answer is it's, it's easier to say, and it's important to say, your sins are forgiven. Because there's really no way for anyone to disprove that, right? It's like a bad fortune cookie. You open it and it says, an exciting opportunity lies before you. And you have no way of actually saying if that's true or not. Uh, but if you open a fortune cookie and it says, open your wallet and you will find $100. Like that's a gutsy fortune cookie. And that's why they don't print those. But it's, it's just easy for someone to say, hey, your sins are forgiven because nobody can prove that. Nobody can disprove it. But Jesus does the risky thing. In verse 24, and this is important, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Jesus says the harder thing. He says the thing that puts his reputation and his ministry on the line. If he says this, 
And this man does not get up. The book ends here and we close our Bibles and go home. But he heals this man. And not just to heal him. What does he say at the very beginning? Why does he heal this man? He wants these people to know he has authority to forgive sins. I want to prove not just that I can heal, but that I can forgive. Now, there there are a host of reasons throughout the book of Luke and even today why people come to Jesus. Some people come like this man because they want bodies to be healed. We're going to find people throughout the book who come to Jesus kind of looking for a moral teacher. Tell me what good I must do to inherit eternal life. Uh, There are some then and now who come to Jesus because they feel like they've been betrayed by other people and they can find someone who can be a friend. And and the good news of the gospel, I don't want to downplay any of that. The, The Bible doesn't want to downplay any of that. Jesus is the great physician. He is the perfect teacher. He is the friend of sinners. But at the very heart of our need is not a lack of health. Or a lack of education, like we need to know the right things. Or a lack even of community. At the very core of our need is a lack of holiness. The greatest need we face is the same need that this man faced. We need someone to forgive our sins. We need to be reconciled to God. And the portrait painted in these two pictures... I think these are back-to-back in ways that I love so much. Because Jesus is not just able to do that, but he's willing to do that. Think back to the, the question of the Pharisees. Which is easier? Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven you, or to say rise and walk? Right? We've already said, the, the logic of this passage tells us that it is much easier to say your sins are forgiven you. But the story of the Bible and the logic of the gospel says that it's actually so much harder to forgive sins than to make this man walk. Right? Jesus is the creator, the, the sustainer of everyone and everything. He spoke and all things came into existence. For him to make these, this man's legs work takes a word. It's simple. But for him to forgive sins, the Bible shows us that he has to become the redeemer. And it's not just a word that he speaks, but it's a cross that he goes to, a price that he must pay. And it's at the cross that we see the price that it took even to forgive this man his sins. And to forgive you and me our sins. He goes and takes the sin of everyone who would trust in him upon himself And he dies a death so that this man's sins can be forgiven. And then he does again the harder thing, which is easier for us to proclaim to you. Here's a man who died for your sins, or here's a man who rose up from the dead and conquered. And Jesus does that. He gets up from the dead, proving so that you may know that he has authority to forgive your sins. Friends, if, if you are here with us this morning, I'm, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm, I'm, we think that it is important. We, we love being with God's people. We would encourage you to be in church with God's people on Sunday morning, even if this is not your church home. 
But this is the message of the gospel. We want to be most clear about Jesus sees our greatest need. And he can meet it. And for all of those, for the many of you in here who are church members, who have cast your sins upon him, rejoice that he has met that need. And if you were here and you would say, I'm, I'm not a Christian, I'm very curious about what's going on, why you're here, we're glad you're here. You may have come because you think, I need some moral teaching for my kids. Great, I hope you can find that here. Or you may say, I need community. I want people around me. I think you can find that here. Don't confuse your what you think is your greatest need with what is actually your greatest need, though. We want to be clear with you. Your greatest need is to be reconciled with God, and Christ has done what is necessary to make that available to you. And if you turn to him, you can know that forgiveness. If you have questions about any of that, I'd love to talk to you after the service today. Or you can find, if you came here with a friend, with some other Christians, talk to them after the service. This would be our great joy to talk with you after that. Now, that's, that is the portrait of who Jesus is. It's a portrayal of his identity as the one who can forgive sinners. And if that is who he is, what then should we do? I want to start at least with the small word that Jesus sees in this story of the paralytic. When he looks at this man, it doesn't just, he doesn't just say, I forgive you, but it says he sees something in particular. He says he sees their faith. He saw a trust in him that led these people to take drastic measures. And I think that's what we see in these two stories on the outside of the passage. Faith in action as disciples follow Jesus. So in the, look at verses 1 through 11, and in this first story we see Jesus teaching by the lake of Gennesaret, another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he's going out in one of the boats to address the crowds that are gathered there to listen to him, and he finishes teaching his sermon, and he gives Simon, uh, a fisherman by trade, a command. He says, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch, which, if you're Simon, may come across as a little annoying. You know, Drake is a, Drake works in construction. I don't go to Drake and say, hey, uh, why don't you build a big column right here? That seems like a good idea. And here's this, this man, this teacher coming and saying, hey, go out there and, and cast your nets out in the lake. Peter, Simon, evidently respects Jesus. And so you see him, he calls him master. And he says, you know, we've been fishing all night. We caught nothing. But, but I, at your word, We'll go down and we'll, we'll try it. We'll see what happens. And verse 6 tells us what happens. When they, when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Now, kids, question for you. You're Simon. Your job is fishing. And you just hit two boatloads of fish. How, how do you feel? Camille, how do you feel? Amazed, excited, right? Look at what just happened. And what does Simon do? Does he shout and say, we did it. We got dinner for the next several months. Now, verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Simon, Simon recognized this is not just the rabbi who's come to teach. 
Uh, This is not just the carpenter down the road who happens to be really good at knowing where fish are. No, he doesn't call him master anymore. He calls him Lord. He knows that if this man, if Jesus can look into the murky depths of a lake and know that they're going to catch some fish there, then all of a sudden he's standing in the presence of somebody who can not just look into the lake, but who can look into the murky depths of his own heart and mind and know what's in there as well. And he says, I am a sinner. When he, when he knows he's in the presence of one who is that kind of power, that knowledge, that holiness, he does what we read earlier in Isaiah 6. He falls down as a man undone in confession. I am a sinner. And this is part of what faith looks like. right? It sees God for who he is. Simon has clear vision of who this person is. And then he looks at himself and he says, I know what I'm like now. And he recognizes a gap that's not just like, I need to do better. No. No, he says, there's a gap that can't be bridged. This is why we have a prayer of confession every Sunday. Because we want to sing of the greatness of God and paint a picture before our eyes, our ears, every week. This is the glorious God we worship. And then we pause, and if you stop and think, what am I then? You say, there is a gap that can only be met by someone else. And here's the beauty of confession. The beautiful story of confession that you see even in this story. When real sinners, real sinners like Peter or like you and me, when when Peter doesn't spend all of his energy trying to hide his sin or, or, or we don't try to kind of put it over to the side, cuddle it behind our back while we talk to the Lord. When we are honest before God in confession in our need, Jesus responds like he does in verse 10. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. What a beautiful mercy. Confession of sin to the Lord doesn't end with the verbal beatdown. You got that right, Peter. You are a great sinner. No, it ends with a word of peace, an assurance of pardon. Don't be afraid. Listen, this, this is so important. I want to be really clear here. Jesus takes sin very seriously. He is holy. He is so holy. And sin is so offensive that sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. And if you want to embrace Jesus with one arm and kind of embrace your sin with the other arm, the Bible is very clear. Luke will say this later. You can't serve two masters. You can't refuse to give up your sin and still experience, and still expect rather to have Jesus as your king. But for everyone, the story of Simon is the story for everyone who will go and say, I'm, I'm tired. I'm just tired of trying to hide that sin. I'm really tired of trying to make peace with that thing. And I want it dead. I want to make war against it. I want to bring it into the light. For everyone who does that, the answer of Jesus to you is do not be afraid. Come in to the light. Bring your ugliness and brokenness, your sin to me. And with that word ringing in Simon's ear, Jesus now gives him a new commission. Verse 10, from now on you will be catching men. 
And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So Peter and his business partners, James and John, they walk away. They set their boats down and they walk away and follow Jesus. And with that ringing in your ear as we turn to the last story. So turn over to verse 27. So after, after healing the paralytic, Jesus comes across the tax booth of a man named Levi. And that's probably another name for the disciple Matthew. And, and tax collectors are detested. They're hated by most of their Jewish neighbors. Uh, they, they are working for the occupying force. They're working for Rome. And they're making money, not because Rome is paying them so well, but because they're taxing their neighbors above what Rome says to tax. Uh, you can think about this being like someone working and living in Nazi Germany, a Jewish person saying, I'll work for the Nazi government. I'll be fine. I'll get rich off of those living around me. Like That doesn't bode well. These tax collectors are hated. But when Levi, Jesus sees Levi, he gives him an invitation. Follow me. And verse 28 tells us that leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. Now, Peter and James and John and Levi, you may hear the stories of them and hear like leaving everything and following him. That's like a group of super disciples. These are the professional Christians. But when we see Jesus as the one who is willing and able to meet our greatest need, when you see the picture that Luke has just laid out for us, and that Simon heard, and that Levi saw, then leaving, being willing to leave anything and follow Jesus is not just like the super Christian path to seminaries and pastors and missionaries. It's just normal Christianity. We're early in the book of Luke. We'll get here, but these are just on your note sheet so you can see this is not an a really outlandish example or that Luke is saying. Luke chapter 9, Jesus looks and says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Or, or chapter 14, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not guilty of bait and switch. Here's the easy thing to do. We don't want to be guilty of that same thing either. We want to hold out clearly the truth. Following Jesus may cost you dearly. It will cost you. It will mean laying down aside all the things that Jesus calls you to lay down. That may be comfort. It may be growing up in this country. It may be money. It may be the things that you say, this is the one thing in life I want to accomplish. And if you come to Jesus and it is not having him at the center and he says, lay it aside and follow me. You say, well, that's only for, I thought that was only for the professionals. No, friends, that's, that's Christianity. But the story of the Bible is not just suffering. Lay those things aside, this suffering and then glory. Lay those things aside and know that what I have for you is infinitely so much better than what you lay down. The old hymn goes like this. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today.
That's, that's what Jesus calls us to. And the disciples who follow Jesus want others to follow him too. Right? That's what Jesus told Peter. Go fish for people. You're going to be doing that. And that's what Levi does. Right? He, as soon as he follows Jesus, we're told he has a great banquet. And he invites all his tax collector buddies and uh, some other people there to have a meal with Jesus. But the Pharisees, those who we saw gathering in the last story, won't, they won't have anything to do with this. They, they turn to Jesus' disciples and in verse 30 they ask, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Don't you know who these guys are? Don't, don't you know that this kind of people, they will make you unclean even? It's like they're, they're still living in the place we saw the man with the leprosy. Right? They, they desire purity, so they separate themselves, not just from sin, but from sinners. And Jesus turns all of that on its head. In verse 31, Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees had this all backwards. Right? They thought, if we do the right things, if we separate ourselves from impurity on the outside and build the wall high enough, then we will have righteousness ourselves. But the problem is that they still have themselves. And that the sin was not something out there to be distanced from. It was in their own lives. In their own hearts. And it's really Peter and a man with leprosy, and a paralytic, and Levi, who show us that the, the purity that we want is not here. Like it's not, if you build the walls high enough and think that you built the purity that you need, you can't build them high enough because you're still in there. And they recognize that, and Jesus says, that's right. They, they recognize they need someone outside coming to them to meet their need. They decide that they're going to go to great lengths even to call others to that kind of Savior. And brothers and sisters, I, I hope you hear a challenge for our own lives. Uh, there is a group in great danger in this story. This is how J.C. Ryle puts it. If we feel ourselves righteous, Christ has nothing to say to us. But if we feel ourselves sinners, Christ calls us to repentance. Let not the call be made in vain. Oh, Christian, never lose sight. Never lose sight of what your greatest need was and what has been met in Christ. Our greatest need. Never, never lose sight that the great physician made you well. And the danger is if we think righteousness now resides in me. And we can start to say, righteousness is here. And forget that it, was, it had to come to us from outside. And all of a sudden we can say, we, we just need to keep my life clean and we'll be fine. No, friends, this is, this is why Jesus says, go and fish for men. This is why Levi calls tax collectors and why Jesus doesn't say, you're right. He probably should have holed himself up with other righteous people. He says, no, I came to call sinners. And that is what he's doing. For this week, like you're going to, brothers and sisters, you're going to be going to workplaces where you're going to rub shoulders with people who are a lot like you. Like some maybe conservative Mormon people who, neighbors who live next door to you. And like there's so much that is similar 
And you may, you may get online and read something from your friend who is totally unlike you. Someone who is on the different side of you politically, who says things that you find offensive, who lives in a way that you don't like. Here's the good news, the news you need to hear. Their greatest need is your greatest need, and Jesus has met it for you, and he can meet it for them too. And the job now of Christians, what we are called to do is not say, I think he can solve this problem, but this one is too great. No, for for everybody outside, we say, I know what my greatest need is, and I know someone who met it. Friend, can I, can I introduce you to somebody who who can meet your greatest need? Even if you're not like me? Even if everybody around me thinks there's no use talking to someone like you? I know the man who knows your greatest need and who can meet it. Would you follow him? And for that's, that is the command. Brothers and sisters, that is the call of Christ on our lives. We have seen our greatest need. We know the great physician. And now we call others to find healing in him as well. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, we, we thank you, God, that you see through the facades that we put up and you know our need and that you have done what is necessary at the cross to deal with our sin. And now, Lord, I pray for us in this room who trust you that we would follow you faithfully and help us even to follow you in bringing your word and your forgiveness, proclaiming that to those outside of us. I pray that we would look on them as, like us, sinners in need of a Savior. And we ask that you would get great glory for the name of Jesus through your people and through lifting up Jesus high. We pray this in his name. Amen.